Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, the first chapter, taking up our study of verse 4 again in our series of messages, really parts of the same message under the title, Chosen Before Time. There is a, a truism that I have long held to, and those who know me well know that I have it repeatedly espoused it, and is this, that a man persuaded against his will remains of the same opinion still. A man persuaded against his will remains of the same opinion still. That is true in politics. You can win the uh, debate or the argument But when someone goes into the polling place, they will vote according to what they believe. That is true in sales and marketing. You can, unless and until you capture the person's will, they will never buy your product. You have to convince them to do it, deeply convince them. It's true in parenting. With regard to your children, you can make them do things as long as you are bigger than they, but the day is coming where if you have not captured their will, you will find out that um, they're not so persuaded about mom's and dad's ideas. It's true in committee meetings. You can arrive at what appears to be a formal consensus, but Later on, you realize that people were just kind of going along with it, but they didn't really embrace that. It's true with husbands and wives. Then you can verbally overwhelm your wife, or I guess wives, you could verbally overwhelm your husbands until they say, okay, your way. But they're not really persuaded, not deep down. And it's true in preaching. It's true in preaching. A person persuaded against their will remains of the same opinion still. People may agree on the surface, but until their desires change, they never really change. Real change occurs at the level of the will, at the level of the desire. We do what we desire to do, always. Always. This is true with the conversion of sinners as well. Unless and until an individual comes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Son of God, they will never turn from their sin and flee to the cross of Christ to love and embrace and follow Him wholeheartedly. We can sell fire insurance. We can elicit professions of faith. But the true change of conversion is at the deepest levels. It's the level of the desires. The desires have to change. And that which ensures the change of desire 
the transformation of the will, which occurs as the result of the Spirit's work through the Word, but that which ensures its success is the secret election of God. Those whom God have chosen from before the foundation of the world will most certainly in space and time come to believe wholeheartedly on the Lord Jesus Christ. They will see the beauty of Christ. They will flee to the cross of Christ. And they will go nowhere else. We're looking here at the fourth verse of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, and we have been exploring the doctrine of God's sovereign election. We have slowed down here purposely because this doctrine is so glorious. It is like a multifaceted diamond. Every way we turn it and look at it, it, it refracts the light, and, it, and it's just beautiful and glorious. And we'd be foolish to, to look at it just briefly and go, oh, that's interesting, and put it aside as if there's something else to see that could possibly compare. So to spend the time to dig deep, to look and, and, and at it from all of its angles is, is a most worthwhile desire or, or endeavor. And it transforms us. The Apostle Paul says that, that as we stare into the face of Christ, we, we are transformed by His glory from one level of glory to another. We are made like Him. And that's what we're doing. We are looking at four facets of God's sovereign election. Why? So that we might rejoice like the Apostle Paul. So that we might rejoice like the Apostle Paul in the, in the glorious and gracious love of God. I mean, Paul in this section here, beginning in verse 3 and running all the way through verse 14, one run-on sentence filled with clauses and subclauses and, and grammatically confusing is punctuated by three expressions of, of spontaneous praise to God. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. It's as if Paul can't contain himself. As he begins to think about all of these things, it just erupts from within him. And my prayer is that that, that would be true of us. This is, this is not an intellectual exercise so that we might become proficient in theology and, and uh, able to argue someone into submission. This is about worship of the living God as we, as we begin to look at who He is and what He has done. The first facet we have spent a number of weeks on now, and that is the reality of God's sovereign election, just the simple reality of it all. Paul just says it here in verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. He elected us. Is the reality of God's sovereign election, and we spent the time to look at that. We looked at numerous examples throughout the Scripture, from the beginning all the way to the end, of God's sovereign election in, in all kinds of circumstances. We looked at God's elect angels 
Well, they looked at God's election of the nation of Israel through the patriarchs. We looked at God's election of, of individuals for particular roles in space and time. We looked at God's election of Messiah, choosing him to accomplish redemption. And of course, we looked at God's election of individuals to salvation, the topic at hand. And we noted in all of these areas, the initiative in choosing lies with God, not with us. It is God. God chose us. And it's on that basis that we can say and have said that election refers to God's decision to exercise His sovereign choice over the affairs of His world, including events, nations, and individuals. This choice extends to the spirit realm and encompasses a fallen individual's response to the good news of salvation available only in Christ. God's sovereign choice lies behind redemption. We spent two weeks then addressing some of the common objections, didn't we? We acknowledged that the, that the doctrine has difficulties for people to, to understand, to process. There are, there, are, there are questions raised, and they're legitimate and, and, and often honest and, and deserve to be answered. So we, we looked at questions like fairness. <laughs> it's not fair. And we looked at that. We addressed the question of free will. What about my free will? We looked at the issue of fatalism. That if, that if it's sovereign election, then, then don't we live in a fatalistic world? Aren't we just robots? In what way do we make any kind of choice that, that means anything? The elect will be saved. Why do people need to evangel or to believe? I mean, we, we differentiated election from belief. If the elect will be saved, why bother to evangelize? We address that question. We just the issue of foreknowledge and the misunderstanding that, that somehow God's election is based on, the, on God looking down the corridors of time and seeing who would choose him and, and thus choosing them. Finally, we address the question of where the Bible says that God desires all men to be saved. What does that mean? And how does that fit in? And so for three weeks, we've, we've looked at these, and there have been lots of good questions. And, and after the service down front here, there are people who have come, and, they, and they've asked really good questions. And, and I know some people are still processing and still struggling, and, and I am so appreciative of the gentle spirit of it all. Pray for those of you who are still trying to come to grips with this and, and don't yet feel like you have your arms around it and, and you're not yet persuaded. I understand. So we have that first facet, the reality of God's sovereign election. Secondly, 
Second facet is the circumstances of God's sovereign election. And that's what I want to look at this morning with you, the circumstances of God's sovereign election. Again, look at verse 3. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop right there. That is a mind-boggling statement. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. What Paul is saying is is that somewhere back before creation, back before time even began, When all there was is the triune God existing in the perfection of His being, in a perfect, loving, harmonious fellowship within the Godhead, Father and Son and Spirit together. God did something. God the Father did something. He formed a purpose in his mind. And the purpose he formed in his mind involved both his son and us. He determined to make us his adopted sons. Look at verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Back in eternity past. Of course, I don't know if you can use the word past with regard to eternity. Is that okay? We are so time-bound. Before time. The Father set His love upon us. Notice the order of the pronouns here. Verse 4. He, God the Father, chose us in Him, that is Christ. The initiative lies with God. The Father. In his mind, God the Father determined to put you, who did not yet exist, and Christ, who has always existed, together in an indissolvable union. Staggers the mind. It was by his decision. He chose us. He chose us. Now, once upon a time you were born... 
You came into this world existing as a real person. And somewhere along the way, that which is true and was true in the mind of the Father actualized in space and time. That is, your election was actualized in your redemption. The Spirit of God worked in your heart. He removed the blinders from your eyes. He he unstopped your ears. He removed, in the words of the prophet, your heart of stone and replaced it with a, with a heart of flesh, the idea of being something that is, that is supple and soft and, and responsive. He wrote within you, on that responsive heart, his very law. You were born again. You were born from above. You were redeemed. You were redeemed. That which was true only in the mind of God now became true in space and time. But beloved, we must not somehow think that what became true in space and time is more real than what was always true in the mind of God. God's plan, God's purpose is absolutely real. Absolutely real. It is no less real or concrete or reliable than that which has occurred in your own experience. Our union with Christ, for a long time, at least before right, God spoke the universe into existence, so how long ago was that? I'm good with 6,000 years. How much beyond that? I don't know. Time came into existence. In the beginning, that's the formation of time. God chose us in Christ. Now, I want to illustrate with you the fact that that God's choice in eternity past is absolutely real and absolutely reliable. And it's not dependent upon the, the actuation in space and time to somehow validate it or make it real. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn you to a couple of passages. I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. 
Acts 2.23. We'll pick it up in verse 22 just to get a little bit of context. Men of Israel, Peter says, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Christ. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God elsewhere in the Scripture, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, says in Revelation. When was Jesus crucified? He was crucified under the governorship of Pontius Pilate. That's a historical reality. We're not saying he was somehow crucified before he was crucified. What the Scripture says to us is the determination that this event would occur makes it absolutely certain that it does occur. It is real. Even though it has not yet taken place. Back to Isaiah chapter 45. I'll look at another one. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 1. Actually, Isaiah 44, verse 28 through Isaiah 45, verse 1, right? Isaiah 44, 28 to Isaiah 45, 1. Of course, in the Isaiah scroll, there is no chapters 44 and 45. That's a helpful addition. Isaiah 44, 28, it is I, is God speaking, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will perform all my desire, And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Who is this Cyrus guy? He happens to be the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's who he is the most powerful man in the world of his day. And what's so incredible about these statements here is they are made 150 years before the guy's even born. He is called out by name before he is born, 150 years before he is born. And what he will do is spoken of. Now, I want you to think with me. How many billions 
of individual and interdependent decisions and events would have to occur in order to ensure the stated outcome of Cyrus, king of Medo-Persia, who will restore Israel back from her captivity and command the rebuilding of the city, the temple. How many decisions do you think? Or how many decisions individually, interdependently, events from around the globe would have to come together so that a Jewish carpenter born to a virgin would be crucified in the reign of Pontius Pilate? Hmm? What do you think? staggering to even consider, to even try to think about that. Beloved, the same is true about you. If you are a child of God this morning, that God's sovereign election of you before the foundation of the world was actuated in space and time in your life at some point, Think about it. Take a moment. Reflect on your coming to faith in Christ. Think about all the circumstances involved in your own conversion. Think about the people. Think about the events. Think about the tragedies. That's what generates praise to God. That's when we begin, just begin, to get a peek behind the curtain to see God. I am the only believer in my family for multiple generations. Literally, a brand plucked from the fire. And I'm not alone. And even if you have been raised in a Christian home with Christian parents and you have known the gospel from your mother's knee, roll it back a couple of generations. Your parents met somewhere, somehow. They wed. And before them, their parents. And you just begin to roll it back and you go, this is incredible. This is incredible. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. And in space and time, he made it happen. Beloved, it is the Father's loving choice of us in eternity past 
that ensures our place at the Father's side in an eternity future. It is an incredible source of comfort in the day-to-day struggle with sin. I will not be overwhelmed by it. Sin cannot undo what God has done. The Father chose me. Not for any good that lies within me, not for the potential of any good that lies within me, but for reasons known only to Himself, which He does not choose to share. He chose me. And I'm now his child. And you too. May that fill your heart with praise and wonder and awe for your God. The first facet is the reality of his sovereign election. The second is the circumstances of election. The third is the purpose of God's sovereign election. Why did God choose me? The scriptures tell us that God chose ancient Israel so that they would be a holy people. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. Exodus 19 and verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose them to be a holy people. And Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 that he chose us in Christ for the same purpose. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless before Him. It is the Father's good plan to produce a holy and blameless people. And Paul says here that our election results in these twin benefits. Holiness and blamelessness. Why did he choose you? 
that you would be holy and blameless. Why did he choose me? That I would be holy and blameless. Now, first off, um, something is taken away from us. (laughs) And then secondly, something is added to us here. He chose us that we would be holy. That's something added. And then blameless, that's something taken away. Blameless is an interesting word here. It is the word that is used very often in the Septuagint, the, the Greek word here. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this word is used very, very often to, to refer to the sacrificial animals, and there it is translated unblemished. The idea is unblemished. He chose us that we would be unblemished before him. That word is also used in the Old Testament to speak of people who are morally blameless or or perfect. He chose us that we would be unblemished, blameless, morally perfect. Isn't that interesting? Because what that means then is the blame that you and I have and the shame that you and I feel will not always be there. It will not always be held against us. We are chosen by God to be unblemished. Now, how does that work? Because right now, I'm pretty blemished, aren't I? I mean, I know my heart. And you know yours. And blameless is not one thing that I would, that I would attribute to myself. And unblemished is not what I would attribute to you. Now, this is, not a, this is not a statement about suck it up and try harder. That God chose you before the foundation of the world so that you would try harder to be unblemished or blameless. This is a statement about what God has done for you in Christ. Jesus is without spot. Jesus is without blemish. And so to be chosen in Him is to be united to Him and thus to share in his blamelessness and spotlessness. Over in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Paul's writing about this reality, and he says that 
that has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. We had a certificate of debt. We, we owed something we could never pay. We were indebted. We were slaves. And he, that is Christ, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All of my blemishes, all of my shame, all of my condemnation, all of my guilt was nailed to the cross of Christ. And I bear it no more. And if you're His this morning, by grace, through faith, that's true of you as well. It has been lifted from you. It has been removed from you. But not only has something been removed, but something else has been supplied, and that's your holiness. He chose us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Holiness. The holiness of Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It now is ours. This is the Father's plan in eternity past. His election of us in Christ ensures the reality of the removal of our shame and our blame and the addition of Christ's holiness to us. We receive the benefit of the Son's perfect love and obedience to the Father. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus did exactly that. And in union with Him, I benefit from it. The Father looks at me in union with Christ, and he sees the holiness of his own Son. Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is a great exchange that occurred in space and time the reality of which was ensured at the moment of our election. Paul is not really primarily speaking about the practical blamelessness and holiness of the Christian life, although that is certainly part of the concepts here. But he's really he's looking beyond that reality of my day-to-day activity. And he's speaking of something much deeper, much more profound, much more eternal. He is speaking about the the end goal of God's electing love for me. That I would be. His election ensures that I would be blameless and holy. The same is true for you. Turn over to chapter 5 of this 
the same letter here. Chapter 5 and in verse 27, Paul has been talking, you know, he's talking about marriage and the role of husbands and wives and so forth, and he transitions through marriage, which is, a, which is an enacted illustration of a deeper and more profound reality, which is the relationship of Christ and the church. There in verse 27, he, he's speaking about the church, about us, and, and he says that he, Christ, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ is at work, bringing about in space and time that which the Father decreed before the foundation of the world. And by the way, this is a, this is a looking forward kind of perspective. Paul prays this way frequently. He prays for the, for the blamelessness and the holiness of the church, not so much in the temporal realm as that we would be that way when Christ returns. That when Christ returns, the, the reality of what, what our election ensures would come to full blossom at the return of Christ. For example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. So grow in your understanding with your eye to the future, which is that when Christ returns, you will be blameless. This is important. It's not like we are every day kind of working it up and, you know, you're going to get there to the top of the ladder and Christ is going to return and and, uh, take you home. That's not what happens. You're going to struggle with sin, my friends, every day of your life. And you are going to win and you are going to lose. And now you will grow in the likeness of Christ and, and some temptations that used to overwhelm you will no longer have such a, such a heavy grip upon you. You will make progress, to be sure. But even at the end of your days, you will be closer to, to Adolf Hitler than you will ever be to Christ. So that what you long for will come to fruition. That which was decreed will come to its fruition at the return of Christ. And so we live here between the ages. Longing for the return of Christ. That our election might be made complete. Complete. 
As one writer said, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord is progressively wrought within the lives of believers on earth by the Spirit, but it will be consummated in glory at the parousia, at the return of Christ. That time of redemption that is anticipated in the days to come. Take a look at Romans 8 with me. And verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice everything is in the past tense. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us, right? Who could possibly disrupt this incredible reality? Chosen in Christ, assuring our future blamelessness and holiness and our place at the Father's side. To the praise of the glory of of His grace. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to Your Word and are challenged by what we find. Just the depth of your love. It's beyond our comprehension. The power of your might to bring about that which you have decreed in eternity past, to bring it about in space and time. To think about our own conversion, that, that moment when we said yes to Christ and And to think about all that went into it, all the events and circumstances leading up to it. To consider the reality that you are in control of every bit of it. That you might work out your perfect plan and purpose for us. We're humbled. We're awed. We get a glimpse of who you are and and our only response can be to fall on our face and to praise and to worship your name. You made us your children. You've secured our holiness, our blamelessness, our place at the Father's table. Joint heirs with Christ. 
Our Father, the certainty of our election is the root and anchor of our soul in this world, this troubled world. How grateful we are. And now in the words of Jude, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.